Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Okay, is everyone here who's taken the Galatians class? All right. I'll open up in prayer. We'll get started, and we're going to have a fun class tonight, I promise you. Let's pray. Avinu Malkenu, our Father, our King. Lord, we acknowledge your uh, Spirit's presence here tonight. We know that, uh, that, that you love us and that you've demonstrated your faithfulness to us over and over. And so, Father, we come before you and we ask for your goodness and mercy. Uh, to just extend throughout this room. We, pr- we ask that each and every student would uh, uh, learn tonight and uh, expand our understanding of your Torah, your words, your ways, um, your loving instructions for us. Fill us with your spirit so that we can walk in your ways and be a light to those around us. And as we interact with our friends and family, may we also extend mercy and grace as we've seen you extend to us. Help it to be a fruitful study. Help us to retain uh, that which we study and help us to um, continue to press into your word, not to be satisfied, but to continue to uh, want to grow and to uh, uh, um, be just a, a better people for you. Um, examples of, of what Yeshua promised that we should be. Thank you, Father, for all these promises that you give to us through Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. Okay, Andre. Come in. Welcome to another study on the book of Galatians. I'm Ariel Ben-Lyman. And um, I don't have a handout for tonight. Instead, I thought I would teach just free-handed. I thought about making a handout, and then I thought, no, sometimes I can't go as fast as I want to go if I'm looking at a handout. So I'm not going to have any handout. What I do want you to do, though, is take out a piece of paper. And if you need to borrow one from your neighbor, that's fine. You have a pen, have a paper, and we're going to look at some things. Does this thing work? Yes, it does. Everybody have a pen and paper? I'm going to stop slightly. What does this go till 7.05? Right? 7.05? I'm going to stop at 7 o'clock so that I can take attendance. Or 8.05, 8.05. I'll stop at 8 o'clock so that I can take attendance. Okay, everybody have a pen and paper? All right, here's what I want us to do. We are going to bust open the book of Galatians hermeneutically. In other words, we're going to, do, we're going to um, do, I'm going to give you what I have found to be some of the more important hermeneutic keys to unlocking the book of Galatians. But before we do that, before we get up on the chart, and I, I pull this away because I just want to be able to see you guys. Um, we need to describe the way Galatians is typically translated or typically 
explained from the prevailing Christian view. That way what we'll be able to do is bounce off of that and glean from their view what, what is good and jettison that which doesn't work. Okay, Everything that the church has done for the last 1900 or so years with the book of Galatians is not all bad. I don't want to throw it all out and reinvent everything all over again. So, let's fill in. Historically, the book of Galatians has been seen as Paul's answer to the question. I'm, I'm speaking from this point on as your average evangelical Christian. Okay. Um, historically, the book of Galatians is, is uh, Paul's answer to the question facing the first century dilemma. Should the Gentiles keep the Torah? And what is God doing in the, the since the move of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2? There's this new thing happening. Um, Judaism is out. It's being phased out. Uh, Christianity is being phased in. And when I use those terms, I, I, I'm speaking in, in, in a sociological way. I'm not saying that Judaism is, is dead, but rather... That's old. It's passe. It's, it's, it's a dispensation that is gone, bygone. It's, we're moving out of that dispensation into a new dispensation. We're moving from the dispensation of law into a dispensation of grace. It used to be that to approach God, we must keep the law. I'm speaking as a Gentile Christian, either in the first century or today, because more or less the, the views are still the same. Um, if we want to approach God and be accepted by God, we used to have to keep the Torah. But now we are understanding through the Spirit and especially through Paul's writings, and Galatians is one of them, that the law has been done away with. No longer does God require us to keep kosher, to come on Sabbath, to keep the festivals and things like that. We are now to live our lives ordered by the Spirit and governed by the Spirit. We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. And therefore, as we read Galatians, we find Paul going around and uprooting the old uh, vestiges of Judaism and a mindset that taught that we must keep the Torah. And unfortunately, what we had in Galatians is a group of diehards, a, a bunch of Jewish Christians, or maybe just Jews, who are still fervently um, uh, uh, committed to keeping the law. Did you need to speak to somebody? Okay. A bunch of Christians who are still committed to keeping the Torah. These Nazarenes, these, these descendants of the first followers of Jesus, are, are convinced that the law should still be adhered to as believers. Because that's the Jewish way, that's been the Jewish way for centuries. So what we, what I, or what Paul needs to come along and explain to us is that Christ has set us free from the law. He nailed it to the cross. Um, he set us free from that bondage. And we are not to go back under such bondage. We are now free in Messiah to be led by the Spirit. I can't emphasize this more. This is what we believe as we study Galatians. Again, keep in mind I'm still speaking as a, uh, as a uh, prevailing Christian view, right? I'm not picking on any one group. So if you guys hear me saying this and go back and listen to the tape, like, Ariel, what are you talking about? All right. Um, we read verses like, um, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law, you're under grace. We know then that, we're, but that Paul's telling us that we're not obligated to keep Torah. We're not obligated to keep kosher. Now, of course, we know that we are still obligated to keep the moral parts of the law. This doesn't mean that we can simply go out, kill, murder, uh, you know, commit adultery, do those types of things. But rather, what Paul is saying is we're definitely free from the ceremonial aspects of the law. For instance, in Romans 14, he tells us that one man considers one day, another man considers another day. What's important is that every man be convinced in his mind. We know then that Paul's giving us freedom to choose Sunday over Saturday. So, Galatians becomes Paul's most important work as to stand fast in Christian liberty. We must not lose sight of that. Anything other than that, short of that, is bondage. 
Did I cover all the bases? Did I skip anything? I'm, I'm now out of, I'm, I'm getting back in my body as I've had this out-of-body experience. Did I miss anything, or was there, is there anything else you guys want to add to that? Does that sound pretty good? Was I right in step? Okay. All right. So that's problematic for people in this class for one chief reason. I'm of the assumption that most of you in this class, no, I'll just be honest. I'm, I'm of the assumption that all of you in this class are Hebraic. Hebraic means you guys are interested in Torah. This means from the prevailing Christian view, you guys are going back under the law. And so you guys are going to have problems, right? You guys need help. You guys need therapy. <laughs> you know? Sister, you're going back in bondage. Okay, and we're, we're playing these stereotypes, but this is the genuine concern of our brothers and sisters in Messiah who don't have a Hebraic view of Torah. And it's often, it's, it's odd that they often use Galatians as their defense. We're going to use the Galatians to turn it right back over. We're going to swap that thing around. So, now I'm Ariel again, okay? Okay, here we go. All right. What we have to do to navigate through Paul is we have to understand his intra-Jewish polemic and the social situation facing Paul. So I'm just going to come out and say what I believe Galatians is about. And the stuff I'm saying is based not on... I didn't learn this last night. I didn't just watch the video last night, okay? That's not how it goes. Rather... Ever since probably 1977 and the uh, seminal work by E.P. Sanders called, um, I think it was called Paul Millar, Jesus and Judaism. I can't remember which book. Anyway, E.P. Sanders is a Jewish uh, theologian who's not Messianic, by the way. And what has happened is for too long, the caricature of Judaism as a, as a works-based religion has prevailed in Christian theology. If you ask your average Christian again, and, they, and you ask them what is Judaism the first century all about, they'll pretty much tell you in a word, it's about legalism, right? A works-based system. That is the caricature, the caricature of Judaism from a Christian viewpoint. Ask the Christian, generally speaking, some, some don't hold that view, but most do. Well, the straw finally broke the camel's back, I guess, and Jewish authors spoke up. And said, how dare you characterize us as a works-based religion? As if we have no faith in God, no love for God, or no love for our fellow man? This is not what we're about. Where are you getting your information? And they point back to Luther. As if Luther's some expert on the opinion of first century Judaism. Well, as it turns out, there is a body of writings that has preserved for us the viewpoints of the first century Jewish uh, leaders. And it's known as the Talmud. Unfortunately, most Christians don't open up the Talmud. There's probably a reason for that. Who doesn't know what the Talmud is? Just curious. Okay, all of you are somewhat familiar. All right. Um, so the Talmud gives us a snapshot of the first century Judaism because the Talmud was written by the survivors of that time period. We also have the Qumran writings, the uh, Essene sect who lived down south, who separated themselves from the uh, society of, of, of the first century and lived out in the desert, lived in, in caves, lived on simple means, kind of like the like you were talking about, more or less the monks of Paul's day that more or less just said, you know what, we're ascetic. We're going to back away from you guys. And we're the true community because we're the only ones doing it right. So we have their writings that have survived down to this day as well. We also have, again, the, the um, Jewish authors who are willing to speak out today. And then we also have many well-meaning Christians who are willing to open up the, the scriptures unbiasedly and say, you know what, let's not read Paul like we think he's supposed to read. Let's just gather the data. Don't approach the Torah with a preconceived notion. Let's gather the data, put it on the table, arrange it, and see what it says to us. You know, it's like your standard um, 
uh, gosh, I hope you guys don't think I'm picking on Christians when I do this, but I don't know how else to get convey the message other than using caricatures, all right? Your average evangelical way to approach a sermon is to, okay, I'm going to speak on love today. So I pull out, I, I, I got my topic in mind, love. And then what I do is I use, use my computer or my strong concordance, and I find all the verses that use the word love. And then I pull those together and, and fit them into a a frame that I've already arranged that I'm going to speak about in my little outline and I make my sermon what I what I in other words I've already I already know what I'm going to talk about I just need to get the verses to support my view the correct way to approach scripture is to say okay father I want to speak on love but I don't know what love is so let me go read first do the torah collect all the data and then let the data tell me what love means not I know what it means, and then I'm going to make the verses fit my, support my view. Rather, no, I, I lay out all the data, read it, pray over it, and let the data tell me what love means, not me tell before the verse. Does that make sense? Okay. We have some well-meaning Christians who are saying, you know what? Let's let Paul speak for himself. Let's not make Paul say that the law, the law is bad, Torah is bad, Judaism is out, outmoded, and things like that. Let's just read through Paul. And read him historically, objectively, and 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 um, uh, uh, col- uh, uh, compare him with previous things that he wrote, as well as previous things that the Torah says of its, of itself, and see if they corroborate, see if they work together. And what we find is a new school of thought when it comes to Paul, and that's ever since, like I said, about the mid seventies. So that's what you're going to be hearing a lot of tonight is is a more, I believe, accurate view of Paul because it lets Paul speak for himself, not lets Luther speak for Paul. Much of what's said about Paul today is through Luther's voice. And that's pretty much the standard answer that Christianity has inherited and refuses to give up. Okay, you guys ready? Okay, strap yourselves in. Here we go. What I'm going to give you is what I hope is, uh, I found that if we simply take, and I've tried to distill it as, as easy as I can. I keep looking at the clock because I'm a little nervous. Um, what I've tried to do is distill it down to at least maybe like four terms. If we can take four terms or phrases that Paul uses in Galatians alone, decrypt them, and then read Paul's letter with this decryption in mind, the, the letter is going to be very drastically different than the historic way that the church has interpreted. You guys ready? Here we go. In no specific order. This is why you guys have their papers, because you guys are going to write this out. All right? Um, I'm not going to make them number one. I'm just going to put them bulleted. All right? This is my first one we're going to pick up. Works of law. This is the Greek, ergon namos. Works of law, ergon namos. Okay? Second one. Under law. Or your Bible may say under the law. The Greek is is emphatic. It's actually, well, I shouldn't spell it. Th- yeah, I spell it. I will spell it that way. The H is silent. Upo namon. Under law. The third one is circumcision. And give me a second. I want to make sure that I don't get the noun confused with the verb. It's either paratoma or paratemno. Uh, whoops, wrong direction. 
I know what the fourth word is off the top of my head. I just this one I get confused sometimes. Let's see. Circumcision. Um No, scratch that. I'm sorry. Let's put circumcised. Okay, that works better for me. All right, and give me one moment. 4059 is going to be Peritemno. Okay. Okay. One, two, three. And our fourth one is going to be the word law itself. Even though I've got it up there three times, we have to hit that one anyway. The Greek word is namos. Okay, you guys got that on your paper so far? Works of law, ergon namos. Under law, uponomon. Circumcised, paratemno. And law, namos. These four terms are going to give us some important hermeneutic keys to understanding Paul. What we're going to do talk what we're going to talk about briefly tonight is that we're going to define them over on this side of the board. I'm going to define them the way Paul defines them. It's best I understood using the data that I just referred to already. Rabbinic literature, um, Qumran literature, Paul's own letters, things like that. The Torah itself. Rather than defining them the way that historic Christianity has seen fit to define them and then use those to understand the verses that they do. You ready? Here we go. Works of law. This is a technical term that in Paul's day quite simply refers to the group requirements imposed upon any individual wishing to join the larger group. In our example, or in Paul's letter, the larger group is Israel, or Judaism, if you want to use those terms synonymously. Okay? And the um, prospective Gentile or non-Israelite or non-Jew who wanted to come in and join the group had to undergo a ritual. If you were a male, there were at least three, maybe four things. If you were a female, just skip one of those things. You guys kind of understand what I'm talking about there, okay? The point is, is it was a list or a a requirement that the group per, per, or that the group imposed on individuals wanting to join the larger group. The group was a closed group. It was a closed group, and it was closed to Jews only, males and females, but Jews only. In other words, in Paul's day, I'm not saying Paul agreed with this when we read the letter. Paul used to believe this way, but he doesn't believe it anymore. But the prevailing Judaisms of Paul's day held to a firm belief that all Israel shared a place in what we call heaven, but they referred to it as the world to come. So that if you ask your average Israelite, are you saved, using today's church lingo, that, that wouldn't really jive well with it that wouldn't kind of stick in their head but if you ask him do you have a place in the world to come like a reservation at a well-known hotel or something do you have a place in the world to come which is the next age there was a dualism going on in paul's day there was this age then the next age and this age is where we're living right now and the next age is after you die we still have that dualism in christianity as well we have this life and we have heaven there's no purgatory, at least in Protestant circles. So in Paul's day, you had this age and you had the next age. Or the next age was the age to come or the world to come. And the, the belief in Paul's Judaisms were that every Israelite, by virtue of, I'm sorry, every Jew by virtue of, by, by virtue of being a Jew shared a place in the world to come. That means you got God's blessings now as you walked in Torah and you got God's blessings in the age to come. All the promises. In other words, it's almost like you're born saved, to use church lingo. 
Okay? So let me write this up here and then I'll start taking some questions. Works of law. I'm going to use the phrase Okay? Proselyte conversion policy. The reason I put it up there like that is because Paul's main message or main uh, the thrust of what he's trying to get across in his letter to Galatians is he's trying to get the non-Jews, I, a.k.a. the Gentiles, to understand that they don't have to go through this in order to be full-fledged covenant members in Israel. Or to use church lingo again, they don't have to go through this to become saved. If I can use that word. Okay, now, you had a question or a comment? If you were a bad Jew, you, you went through what we call karat, K-A-R-A-T, which simply means you're cut off. What happened to you, they didn't have a strongly developed theology on. They simply said you were cut off. That means you were left, your lot was taken away, and you were more or less a Gentile in, the, in, their, in their view. But they didn't necessarily have a, a, a well-reasoned view of hell. The Qumranis did, and we may get into that later on. But that's a pretty good question. In other words, you couldn't go knocking on the door of your average first century Islam and say, hi, I was just wondering if you were to die today, were you 100% sure you'd go to heaven or would you have some doubt? You've all heard the Romans road, the four spiritual laws. That didn't work in first century Israel. Okay, so works of law, ergon namos, is proselyte conversion policy. The reason it's called works of law is because, and this is just a side note, you don't have to write this down, we'll develop this later on. The Judaisms of Paul's day held to what we might call today nationalism, but what they refer to as Covenantal nomism. Covenantal nomism is a term coined by E.P. Sanders, the guy I just mentioned. And is, I think it is, um, I think it's Paul and the law. I'll have to take a look. It's going to show up in next next few handouts that I give you anyway. Um, but we're going to do a whole study on covenantal nomism. What that basically means is the Jewish people held, and part of it is not incorrect, Jewish people held to believe that God, by virtue of his mercy, chose Israel out of the nations of the earth. And he chose Israel and scooped them out from the nations and made a covenant with Israel alone. And in cutting a covenant with Israel, he again gives her the, um, um, the gift of the Torah. Contained in the Torah is the, are the promises of, light, of blessing now and blessing in the world to come. In other words, it's a legal document. It's like a will that God gives to his beloved son. And the reason we call it covenantal nomism... The word namas is the root of the part of the nomism part. Covenant simply says, I am a covenant member as I remain faithful to the namas. Namas means law. And in this case, we mean Torah when I say law. I hope no one up here thinks I'm talking about Roman law, right? You guys all know what I mean. Okay. So basically God says to the Jew, I'm going to make you a covenant member. And as a covenant member, you get my promises. You inherit this. Here you go. That's yours. And therefore, your responsibility is to keep that and maintain covenant faithfulness to that so that I, for my part, will maintain the promises contained therein. Therefore, if you keep your part, I'll keep my part. But know that I, as God, first reach out to you in mercy and grace. I simply chose you because I set my affections on you. There's nothing you could do to earn your position as a covenant member. The Jew who lived in the first century, who was born a Jew, did not earn his place in the covenant. 
That's drastically different from the, from the standard um, Christian view of the Judaisms of their day. Again, let's rewind back to that character that I said of the church. The average Christian reads the book of Galatians and says, Paul's trying to combat a Judaism that was trying to earn their way into heaven. They thought if they could just keep the law, keep it perfectly, then God would accept them. God would save them if they could just keep the law. Do you know no Jew in the first century ever believed that? Do you know no Jew today believes it? So you have to ask them, where do they get that view? I think it's conjured up. The point is, the Jewish people believed in the first century that they were in because they were Jewish. And how did you get Jewish? I was born Jewish. That sounds like mercy and grace to me, right? Yeah, they weren't earning their way. They were just enjoying. Yeah, they were chosen. Okay, so... The proselyte conversion policy is for you unfortunate Gentiles who weren't born Jewish. I'm, as I speak with a little bit of tongue in cheek. So the Jews of the, of the first century thought, you know what, gosh, we'll go ahead and help the Gentiles out. They, after all, you know, most of, in, 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 first century, um, in first century ancient Israel, you had two choices. You could worship at the Temple of Diana and all of Rome's paganism and, and pantheonism, polytheism and all that other pantheon of gods. Or you could worship at the Temple of Yahweh, the Temple of God. There were only two temples. There wasn't the First Baptist Church down the street. And you couldn't claim atheist. You claimed atheist and you got your head lopped off. The, the emperors of Rome viewed themselves as deity. And if you claimed atheism, your thumb and your nose at the emperor. Plain and simple. You had, to be a, you had to have a religion in ancient Rome. And Rome exempted the Judaisms of their day. They called them a collegia, a collegia, I'm sorry, and taxed them with the Fisticus Judaicus, uh, Judaicus tax and made them pay for their religious freedom. So the Gentiles flocking into the synagogues that we read about in the book of Acts, they were either on their way to becoming proselytes or they were good, upstanding Roman citizens who were just visiting. In other words, the God-fearer was someone who, seen by Judaism, was on his way to becoming a proselyte. Only then would he get, get legal status. So, that's the first one, works of law. Um, again, how has the church seen this? How does the church define works of law? Keeping the law. Yeah, you guys keep the Sabbath? You guys keep kosher? You guys keep the festivals? Well, Paul says we're not under the works of the law. We're, we're under grace. Why are you guys doing the works of the law? That's not works of the law. Works of law is the proselyte conversion policy or the proselyte conversion package. It's really a, it's a halakha, is if I want to use the, the technical term. Now, the reason Paul's so upset about this is because they're wielding this, they, the Judaisms of Paul's day, they're wielding this over the Gentiles as the entry point to the covenant. Paul's going to call, they're not really discussing Yeshua. Yeshua's not the issue just yet for them. Paul's going to come along and say, no, you Gentiles, as you place your faith in Messiah, God brings you into Israel. Think of the Romans 11, all of tree theology. We spoke about that last night. God grafts you into Israel. You become an Israelite. You don't have to become a Jew before you can become an Israelite. And you're not only a temporal covenant mem- member, that is to say a Jewish person who doesn't believe in Jesus, you are actually a full-fledged covenant member. You have blessings in this age, and you have blessings in the age to come. You get the whole deal, and all you have to do is believe in Yeshua, and you don't have to go under the knife. Yeah, but the guys are like, gosh. Okay, so that's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 1 that, that these, the people who are pushing this view, he calls it another gospel. It wasn't Jesus plus the law, like the church teaches. No, 
It was like we like they accuse us of, of teaching, you know, you guys have Jesus and the law. No, it wasn't that. It was this over and against. There's two different doorways into Israel. And Paul's going to say, no, no, no. By the way, side note, the people pushing this view, Paul used to be one of them, the church calls Judaizers. And I think that term's pejorative. I would, I would rather you guys kind of get used to the term influencers or something to that effect. All right, works of the law. Everybody clear on that one so far? All right, let's move down to the next one. Under law or under the law as your translation may put it. Under law is also a technical term. Paul refers to a position that a believer or a non-believer finds himself in as regards to God's court. Okay, In God's system of things, you're either guilty or you're acquitted. All men are guilty because of what we inherited from Adam. And in God's law, God blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked. That's a good feature of God's Torah. That's a righteous God who blesses the righteous and punishes the wicked. And what we're talking about is people whose lives are characterized by either righteousness or wickedness. We're not talking about a righteous man who stumbles once. Even King Solomon says that a righteous man stumbles seven times but gets back up. So we're not talking about sinning once or twice. We're talking about is your life characterized by righteousness or wickedness. Obviously, if your life is characterized by righteousness, it's because the spirit of the holy the spirit of the living God, the holy spirit, has taken up residence in you. And therefore the righteousness is borne out by the spirit in you. Therefore you are no longer under condemnation as Romans 8:1 tells us. You are in fact the righteousness of God. Your whole identity has changed in God's view. So, under law is a term that Paul it's shorthand for under the condemnation spelled out by the law. That's, but it's shortened. Paul simply means under law. But it means really under the condemnation of the law. Obviously, when I say law, I mean Torah. The condemnation of the Torah, as I, again, I'll repeat, the condemnation of the Torah against sinners is a good thing. It's a just God who acquits the, those whom he chooses to acquit, but punishes those who thumb their nose at God, right? We like that feature. But what happens is, is, is that in Messiah, we're no longer under the condemnation of the law. The, law. the Torah still spells out the punishment for unbelievers. But what happens is once we p- put on Messiah those condemning passages no longer apply to us. Does that make sense theologically? Yeah, the church affirms that, but the church doesn't understand that under law is what Paul means there. So when Paul says we're no longer under law, we're under grace, he's not saying we're not under, we're not under Torah, we're not under obligation to keep the Torah, like the church says we are saying. What Paul's saying is we're not under the condemnation of the law, we're under grace. And the church would affirm that, but they don't understand that. That's how Paul's using the phrase. Now that we understand that's how Paul's using the phrase, we're going to read Paul a little differently. Okay. All right. That one's a pretty easy one, under the law. All right. This next one, circumcised. Did I spell it right? Circumcised. Is that supposed to be a Z? No? Okay. Peritemno, from two Greek words, peri, which means around, like we get the word perimeter from, and temno, from where we get the word terminus or end, a, uh, a round end or a, a, a to to end around or to cut off in a circular manner. You can see how it fits circumcised, right? Um, Circumcised is used by Paul 
in a variety of ways, but I want to list just some of them, okay? Paul uses circumcised sometimes at, to refer to Jewish people. God sent us to the circumcised and they to the uncircumcised. What's he talking about? It's just as, it's, yeah, people. I mean, that was such the characteristic of the Jewish people and the un-Jewish people, the un-Jewish, the non-Jewish people that we could simply say the circumcised and the uncircumcised. So in other words, this term became like a noun in and of itself, a sociological term, kind of like the term black people. It's not like referring to uh, like an attribute of them. It's like a whole sociological term now. They're black people, something like that. Did I offend anyone? No? Okay, just checking. I, you know, because I resemble that remark, so I just had to check. Okay, um, <laughs> Jewish people. Circumcised also referred to, and we already know this, the surgical act. That's a no-brainer. Circumcised for men means snip-snip. You are all adults. I don't have to elaborate. But number three, here's where we get, um, here's where we don't realize. Circumcised also refers to becoming a proselyte. And that's how Paul's going to use it when he is especially arguing, for instance, say in chapter 5, I, Paul, tell you that if you become circumcised, Christ is of none effect. What's he saying? Is he saying that, that if you go through the surgical act, surgical act that you're condemning yourself? No. Is he telling the Jewish people to stop circumcising themselves, their eight-day baby boys, you know, because that's what Jewish people do? Is he telling Jews to stop becoming Jews? No, not in that sense. What he is telling the Gentile prospects is, if you're placing your faith of getting into Israel and enjoying the promises of Israel and the inheritance of Israel, if you're placing your faith on becoming a proselyte, getting circumcised, then Christ is of none effect because you're choosing door B. And in my little analogy, Christ is door A. Does that make sense now? Okay. He is not uprooting Torah. The Torah does command Jewish men. And in fact, the Torah commands men to circumcise their children. In other words, baby boys should get circumcised in the eighth day. It's right in the Torah. It's in Leviticus chapter, what is it? Uh, 9, 10, or 11, somewhere around there. It's in its early chapters of Leviticus. It's a commandment. So if Paul's teaching people not to at least circumcise themselves physically, then he is uprooting Torah. And I can tell you right now, Paul's not uprooting Torah. He's not. What he's doing is he's realizing that this surgical act and the sociological aspect that it has become associated with the Jewish people and becoming a proselyte for those who weren't circumcised to begin with, this whole act is being misused. So Paul's going to take that toy away from him just for the time being. Because we know he circumcised Timothy in Acts chapter 16. And this was right after the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, where they said, let's not make the Gentiles get circumcised. And then he turns around and circumcises Timothy. What gives? You know, is Paul schizophrenic? No. You know? So, um, so that's what's happening. Circumcised refers to Jewish people sometimes, and that's innocent. Uh, it refers to the surgical act, obviously. But um, it become, means becoming a proselyte. And in the ritual of the proselyte, which you see are connected here, in the ritual of the proselyte, this is one of the things that the males go through. Okay. Final one. I'm looking at my clock there. Law. Namas. All right. This one's real super simple. In Paul's day, as in today as well, namas or law refers to written... 
law plus or and or or I should say it's not always added to but more or less there's no distinction the one bleeds into the other oral law or what I referred to as other er, earlier uh, uh, Talmud written law plus oral law or written law as over and against oral law. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's the other. So that what we have Paul saying, again, I'll use Galatians 5 again. I think it's verse 4 this time. He says something like, I, Paul, tell you that if you become circumcised, you are a debtor to keep the whole law. That sounds rather strange coming from a Torah-obedient male, Torah-obedient Jewish man, until we understand that the word law there, in Paul's estimation, includes written and oral. Because the written law does enjoin every covenant member to keep all of the written law. That's what Moses commanded. So why would Paul have to warn the Gentiles that if they become Jewish, become a proselyte, get circumcised, we're decrypting them now, why would Paul have to warn them that if they become circumcised that they're obligated to keep the entire law? Why is that a problem for Paul? Here's how. Because in Paul's day, there was no clear-cut distinction between written law and oral law. Written law, Paul doesn't have a problem with. But the oral tradition of Paul's day was rapidly going in the direction of exclusion of Gentiles. Remember, covenantal nomism, all Israel has shares of place in the world. Come, All Israel and only Israel. Not all Israel and also Scandinavians and Chinese. and No, all Israel and only Israel. And Israel is comprised, comprised of Jews and only Jews, male and female. No Gentiles in Israel. That was their mindset. So, um, all Israel gets the law, but written law, we don't have a problem with. But the oral law was now saying no Gentiles. So in Paul's estimation, Paul sees that God is reaching out and including Jews and Gentiles and bringing them into one body, to where Jews and Gentiles can fellowship one with another. The fellowship of Messiah that we enjoy together, no matter which family group we come from, no matter which clan we're born into. But the oral tradition was saying no no Gentiles at our tables. No Gentiles at our gatherings. No Gentiles in our, in our um, uh, meeting spaces. In other words, the oral law was at odds with the written law in Paul's estimation. But not according to the prevailing Judaisms of his day. The line that they were towing or the, you know, the, the party that they were affiliating with, the, the prevailing halakha of their day, was that the written law and the oral law worked together. Because it only works for Jews. No Gentiles. That's the thing. In other words, as we read through Paul's letters, and, we, and since Paul wrote most of the apostolic scriptures, as we read through the New Testament, the big question or the big problem in the first century was not the Torah, like the church says. The problem in the first century was not Judaism. The problem, from the Jewish point of view, was the Gentiles. What do we do with the Gentiles? They're the problem. And the problem is, they're Gentiles. Because, you know, because in their view, Gentiles were dogs. They're cockroaches. They're unclean continually. you got to be kidding me. I have no idea who that is. Oh, I shut this thing off. Okay. I see the number. I don't recognize it. All right. Sorry about that. Anyway, so law for Paul means written law plus oral law. And Paul would not have a problem where oral law upholds written law. Yeshua himself demonstrated that. If we have an oral tradition or, or a, uh, a, just a tradition itself that enhances the written law, that's great. We don't have a problem with those. We don't have a problem with traditions as long as they enhance the text. But when they undermine the text, God never said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, but only, only those of you who are Jews. 
leave the Gentiles out. No, God, the, the inclusion of the Gentiles, here's some, somewhere else where the church doesn't understand. God's inclusion of the Gentiles to Israel is not plan B. It is plan A. Yeah, from the beginning, God said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. In fact, the proof is that God hid that from the Jewish people's understanding down through the centuries. And at God's chosen time, he blinded a certain part of Israel so that he could bring the Gentiles in. That's what Paul calls the mystery of the gospel. The mystery is that Gentiles are full-fledged covenant members of Israel without going through any sort of conversion policy to get there. Now, don't, don't put words in my mouth. I don't believe that Paul had a problem with the proselyte conversion policy in and of itself. It's just a, it's, it's, a, it's a tool being used in the wrong way. Israel has always recognized, and I know there are some who disagree with me. Israel has always recognized proselytes in their midst. They all, they, Israel has always enjoyed people coming into her groups, kind of like a, a, an immigration into Israel. On, de- on various different levels, through adoption, through just, um, you know, disenfranchised people groups. You know, Israel conquers a town, and, and, and they're, they're allowed to keep the spoils, so they may take some of the women as wives, and those wives eventually become Israelites, because they give birth to other Israelite children. Um, or, but, but what happened is, Israel in the first century had felt themselves being marginalized by big brother Rome, who had them under their thumb, and especially coming out of the... Um, the uh, uh, Greco revolts, the, uh, uh, um, the, the, the days of the Maccabeans and things like that, they felt that they needed to really kind of, what happens when people get marginalized, when they get shoved off to the side? They kind of regroup and solidify their identities. And so that's what Israel was doing. They were saying, you know what? We got we to gotta find out who we are. And one of the things that we know who we are is that we're circumcised because God told us to be separate. So again, they were fusing truth with half-truth. They really are chosen. God really did cut a covenant with no other people. Can you guys find a covenant that God cut with any other people group on the earth? Yeah, God really did cut a covenant with Israel. And if you do want to be in God's family, you do have to be in Israel. Yeah, they had some truth to their, to their, to their policies. Where they missed it was not understanding. Again, part of it was God blinding them. Was that God was going to bring Gentiles in as full-fledged covenant members without changing their nationality from, from one something to the else. So that Israel becomes a bouquet of the nations that God has chosen to pull into Israel through his Messiah. So, 8.05 almost, gosh, a few minutes. Using these hermeneutic keys, we're going to, here's, for those of you, who's, in the, who's taking it for credit? Okay, those of you who are taking it for credit, what I want you to do for homework assignment is using these hermeneutic keys, I want you to pick out three verses out of the Galatians. I'll let you pick them. Find three verses of Galatians that use at least one of these terms. And don't pick three verses that all use this one. Okay, give yourself a little bit of... Um, stretch, stretch yourself. Find, you know, find one, two, three, or one, two, three, or one, two... You know what I mean. Find three verses. Write out the verse. I don't care which version Bible you copy it from. Then underneath that, I want you to be, be your own commentator. I want you to exegete the passage, just a little verse. It doesn't have to be long. You could even re- It's as easy as taking the verse and rewriting it, and where you get to these words, put in this, um, put, in, put in these definitions, and then stand back and look at what you, what you just wrote there. You're decrypting Paul. It's like a decoder ring. You guys remember, you know, Cracker Jack's box? You get the ring. It's got the little, you know, you've you got the little part on it. You get the little coded message. It's all jumbled, but you put the code over it. And ding, you know, you can... You guys ever watch... No, okay, all right. <laughs> 
Okay, but that's what, I, that's what I want you to do for a homework assignment. Keep it to the guidelines of what your normal LTS stuff is, which means it has to be typed, uh, uh, double space so I can write comments in between it, um, don't exceed 600 words, it has to be Times New Roman. You guys already have that in your packets. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>